Hey, I know you're probably driving or running or cleaning the house or doing something else when you're listening to this, but look, if you're a B2B marketer and you need to start generating revenue from your marketing, then you have to check out our 12-week program, the B2B Incubator. It's built for small, in-house B2B marketing teams with limited time and budget. We give you the strategy, the templates, and the tools to start driving revenue, not just leads. So if you're ready to act on all the advice Kevin and I give you, next time you take that first sip of coffee in the morning, make sure you head to the B2B Incubator and apply now. There's only 10 spots available per cohort with our next one launching at the end of May, 2024. Remember, the B2B Incubator, apply now so you don't miss out. We've had B2B marketing managers, CMOs, marketers in demand generals, content leads, and more all go through this program and they're currently executing the demand strategies that they've created. Some are now even contributing as much as 80% of the pipeline to their business after working through it. Make sure you check out the b2bincubator.com and apply now to start driving more demand and more revenue for your brand. Okay, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the B2B Playbook Podcast. Each week we demystify digital marketing and help B2B businesses grow online. We're your hosts, Kevin and George, a couple of digital marketing professionals. We've waded through the noise and made the mistakes so you don't have to. We'll cover the right plan to get your amazing business growing online, along with tips and tricks from our upcoming playbook, as well as insights from successful people in the industry. If you're in a B2B business and would like to see your marketing work for you, then this is the podcast for you. Subscribe to get the latest from the B2B playbook first. Remember, with the right plan, anyone can grow their business online. Welcome back to the B2B playbook podcast, listeners. Kevin, it's been a pretty big week. Um, I've stuck to the content scheduler, <laughs> which um, you'd be pretty proud of, I imagine. Yeah, that's uh, that's great news, George. Um, I have been seeing your uh, posts and things going up, and it's been an exciting week, um, and last week as well, as we formally started publishing things but um it's always <laughs> exciting to to get uh, a positive response and and for you to get the attention that you so crave yeah that's right i'm absolutely loving getting a, a couple of likes on linkedin kev and um people reaching out and saying that they're really enjoying what we're putting out so far and that the framework makes sense and that it's really putting the marketing journey into perspective. So I'm not just loving um, people actually talking to me, but I'm loving that I think it's actually helping people, which is which is really cool because um, it's one thing for you and I to, to go away and come up with this and for it to make sense to us, but for it to make sense to the people who need it, that's a whole other thing. That's right. That's our, that's our goal here. So really excited to see it uh, start to come together. Okay, let's press on. This episode, we're covering the fourth B in our five Bs, which is our framework for B2B marketing. And that is be better. It fits in after be ready, be helpful, be seen. And now we're at be better. And after that is be the best. Kev, what can we say about being better? Be better is a really good one to now touch on as something that we're not just screaming at our listeners to do and to be better, be better. <laughs> but really, it's about uh, there is a framework there. There's parts there that you can actively work through to get that extra efficiency and effectiveness out of whatever you're already experimenting with that we've covered and you've actioned in the first three stages. 
and it's a very exciting point to get to in that journey because you're probably at this stage a marketing manager within a business um, maybe you're the first or second hire in that business and you're looking to take that extra step to get the foundations really working for your business going forward yeah it's about testing and getting better isn't it so the the very first stage is uh, be ready, which is about laying the foundations. The second stage is about being helpful and showing that you're an expert online. Our third stage is about then going beyond just being helpful and amplifying your helpful content so it gets into the hands of the right people. And they are our three fundamental non-negotiable stages of this framework. And then stage four is, okay, we've got those foundations in place. How can we do it better? It's a point that's really resonated with us, particularly in the last week, George. As you mentioned before, we've had some of our friends reach out to us, some of our listeners reach out and say what a great resource this is. And a, a pain point that seems to be consistent for a few of our listeners is it's probably a disconnect between the traditional business functions and that marketing aspects, particularly in the digital space for B2B businesses, there's sometimes some question about whether that digital stuff is applicable to uh, traditional B2B businesses. And we really think it is. And we really believe and have seen the results that uh, digital channels can bring to those B2B businesses. And as you said there, the first three stages really bring that connection across between the two, between the business objectives and then making sure that the digital uh, marketing the, the whole digital marketing strategy is really built around that um, with that at the core. And now we're at that stage where we can talk about, okay, now we can get into the nitty gritty that you've, now that you've set up that connection between the business objectives and the framework of doing B2B business online, here's how we get that extra efficiency um, out of the things that you're already running to make sure that that connection is not lost uh, when you start to improve and really grow and mature in the digital space for your business. Yeah, my experience, and I'm not sure if this is the same as the listeners, I imagine it would be, but my experience of the content that would fit under this title of Be Better, of always optimizing and improving, there's actually tons out there, right? Like every marketing agency is pumping out content about it. Every marketing guru is pumping out content about it. But again, there's always so many different things um, that you're told to focus on. You're almost like a dog chasing your tail. So what we wanted to do here again is actually break it down into actionable chapters that you can work your way through within this Be Better framework. Yeah, and then tailoring that advice to B2B businesses. We, we've mentioned it before in a few episodes, they're just so underserviced. A lot of the content is focused on, you know, your e-commerce, traditional selling products in a very transactional way online, but they don't really talk about how do you build the relationships that are needed for B2B businesses to succeed online and how do you actually go about doing that. So really keen to like dig into some of those examples in a B2B space and how you can utilize that. Yeah, well, with that said, Kev, why don't we do a quick run through of the different parts of stage four, which again is be better. For sure. Um, as we go through these, you probably think a lot of this applies to e-commerce businesses, but we're going to go into a bit of detail about how you can actually utilize that in a B2B context. So the parts for Be Better are um, starting off with reporting and then moving through A-B testing content, maximizing your affiliates, how CRMs work and how you can get them working for you, sales analysis, and we start talking about the 80-20 rule, optimizing EDMs or email funnels, and finally how to test the balance between paid channels that you have running. 
And again, listeners, you might have felt like you've heard a lot of this stuff before, but we're really going to go through it uh, tailored to you in the B2B context. Yeah, a few thoughts for listeners to to help you get started on some of the stuff that traditionally you might have been uh, a bit apprehensive to starting for your B2B business or thinking that it's not really applicable to a B2B setting. Kicking off with reporting, Kev, reporting is always a really interesting one to me and one that I've personally had a pretty steep learning curve with. What I thought was good reporting because it made sense to me often was really lost in translation, particularly as I specialized more and more in B2B because the reporting that makes sense to me doesn't necessarily make sense to the B2B marketing manager that I'm, that I'm working with because B2B marketing managers tend to be people of such varied experience. And then the reporting that they like and enjoy and make sense to them doesn't necessarily make sense to their boss or the person that they report to. So reporting, I think is, yeah, I think it's a really, really great place for us to start here because if we're going to make improvements in our business, which is what this chapter is about, we have to agree on a set of metrics to measure and use that as a starting point. Yeah, I think just before we move off that point, I definitely agree. Uh, being now in-house and as well having those same conversations when I was agency side, especially when we're talking to business owners, CEOs, people who are maybe outside the marketing function, the metrics or reporting that they look at to make sure that the business is on track is vastly different to what we think is valuable. So it's really important to have that alignment right from day one and continue to make sure that alignment is in place when you look at reporting. And I think the way we advocate doing that is particularly in a B2B context, starting by questioning yourself about what metrics are the most important and what is that one measure that is consistent is the North Star across the whole business. And if there isn't one, then it's time to start questioning that right from the beginning and say, hey, before we start the marketing campaign, whether it's offline or online, what's actually the thing that we're driving towards as a business? Because once you understand that, then you can build all your marketing strategies towards that. And all these always focus on profit in some way, but taking that a step further, what's important? What's important to define is what you divide that profit over. And what I mean by that is what's the common denominator for measuring profit that will naturally grow the business towards the best revenue streams for that business. It's a concept that uh, comes from the book Good to Great by Jim Collins, and we'll link that in the show notes. In that book, he talks about this concept that it's not always ROI that you're looking for. It's not always profit divided by, by investment or how many dollars you make for each dollar invested. Sometimes it's lifetime user value. How much money do you bring in? How much profit do you bring in per customer over the lifetime that they engage with your brand? Or maybe it's even profit per product or service that you provide. How much profit did you make per course so that you focus on the number of courses you're selling rather than how much money you're making with each course? It could even be how much profit for each relationship or partnership that you have establish and grow within a b2b context which that one there might be a lot more relevant and is probably the equivalent in the b2b space for lifetime user value in the traditional b2c space Um, so it's important to figure out okay what are we measuring a profit against um, so that the whole business function is focused on bringing in more of that thing whether that's more sales more customers or more quality customers I think that's a really good point uh, that you need to really agree on as a company and define what metric it is that you guys are chasing and want to improve on. 
I think there is um, a bit of a limitation there for some of our listeners who might be in, I guess, like a younger company or marketing is brand new to that company because it's going to make them feel like every single activity they do is going to have to have a measurable return um, and people tend to like to get that return pretty quickly and be able to measure that quickly. But uh, a lot of what we're teaching in stages one through three is really organic content and a lot of it is branding focused. And a lot of that can be difficult to measure and you don't see the fruit of that labor for six months to a year down the road. So I think it's probably important for us to give people another set of metrics that they can look to and refer to and share with their wider company to say, look, we actually are making good progress in this space online here now and the results are going to come very soon from it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you have to keep in mind that when we talk about reporting here, it's about how to improve the existing reporting you have in place to take you that step further. And and it's really talking to a business that is in some ways established and looking to basically mature in their practices, particularly on the reporting front. And this is a good way to think about how to improve that reporting, what's the metrics that's most important to your business and, and making sure that that's tailored. And actually, it's it's fairly easy um, process. It's actually about returning back to the stuff that we talked about in stage one about why the business exists and what the objectives really are um, for that business existing and making sure that the metrics that you're then measuring and reporting on still reflect that initial vision for the business. Um, but as you said there, George, um, before you get to that stage, Age where you're starting to look at profit over investment or profit over sales or things like that and really focusing on the numbers, you do need to look at um, measuring the impact of your organic activity that may not necessarily have a return for three months, six months, or even 12 months uh, down the line, but then it will just uh, incrementally explode in terms of the return that it gives back to you. So things that are more centered around reach, things like how many impressions are you getting? What's uh, how, how many engagements you're getting on the posts that you're putting out there and the content that you're putting out there and the quality of those engagements. Now, there's a lot of free tools um, in platforms to look at this and we'll cover this um, here and there as we go through the different platforms and chapters in detail. Um, but you can start to action some of this by thinking about, okay, what's the best measures of engagement? And probably the best thing to look at is um, some of the free tools already available in the platforms that you're already serving content on because most, if not all, will give you some sort of measure of the engagement you're getting, whether that's the number of unique visitors you're getting on LinkedIn and the number of uh, visitors to your page and engagements on your posts and where those engagements are coming from and business functions or companies they might be coming from to visit your page. That's a good indicator of um, and gauge of whether the reach uh, that you're getting is aligned with your business objectives and the target audience that you want to reach. All right, folks, quick breather here. In my time in B2B marketing, generally I've come to realize that there are just certain tools that can be an absolute game changer. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about Leadfeeder. Uh, it's a tool that helps you cut through the data and turn those website visitors into solid leads and opportunities for your business. Leadfeeder shows you which companies are checking out your site, tracking their behavior, and it integrates all of this with your CRM. And the result is it's 
basically like a secret weapon for targeted lead engagement, and it really makes it easier for your team to convert website traffic into sales. Head to leadfeeder.com, give it a free demo, and you'll also get a free extended premium trial when you let the rep know that you found out about Leadfeeder through the B2B Playbook podcast. That's leadfeeder.com. Okay, check it out. Back to the show. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, for people who are struggling with a boss who doesn't quite get digital or is still expecting um, you to prove digital um, as something that's workable in the space, particularly on LinkedIn, you can get amazing data on the kinds of eyeballs that are looking at your posts and you can feed that data back to your boss and go, look, we're actually getting the right people with the right size company in the right job position looking at our posts. I think probably something else that's important to note is people in that position who don't fully understand the point of being online or don't quite believe in it. You know, they might say to you, well, that's great, but likes and eyeballs don't sort of pay the bills. If you are speaking to them and presenting this as part of, I guess, similar to our five-stage plan, they can see that there's a plan that you're working towards and they shouldn't expect that return right away. And that's probably more likely to allay their fears and get you off their back in the in the short term and helps explain why the metrics you're focusing on now make sense for their business. And yes, it's not bringing in money straight away, but this is a very, very important foundational step to take on the way to doing so. Yeah, that's right. It's about uh, showing that whole strategy and that whole process um, in mind and how tailored it is, how tailored that marketing function is to the business objectives so that someone who's not from a marketing background or not from a technical marketing background can understand what you're driving towards and what the business and the marketing function needs to focus on at each stage of development. Beyond that, as you get that buy-in from the internal team about um, looking at reach metrics and things like that, you can start to surface more interesting metrics as they get more comfortable with the numbers they're looking at. Things like what format of content seems to work the best? What tone uh, are serious posts best? Are silly, funny, or inquisitive posts best for a particular audience that you're reaching? And which one might bring in the best quality audience relevant to your business and your business objectives? And maybe even what time these posts seem to do best. Uh, so you can start to test some of these things and surface some of the results in your reporting as the maturity and understanding within the business comes as you start to develop that through your digital activities. Yeah, you kind of become um, that portal for data that you can feed to your boss, to your sales staff, uh, you know, just go beyond um, speaking in these different channels and look at what's coming back and share it because it's always useful information. Exactly. But you do have to build that base, as you said, George, from connecting all that activity to a business objective that they already understand and are driving towards and then slowly educate them and grow them into that understanding and the digital side as well. <laughs> all right, Kev. So we've, um, that's part one is reporting. We've set up our reporting. We've agreed on metrics that we want to work towards and improve on. And now we're going to look at how you actually go about doing that. And a great way of doing that is testing. What we call it, what everyone calls it, is A-B testing. Yeah, a couple of other names might be multivariate testing, um, where you're testing more than just A and B versions of a piece of content. There is some nuanced differences between the types of testing in terms of the methodology of how you carry them out. But really, it's all about testing different types of content, changing different things to see which one performs best with a particular audience. And in this particular case, because we're in the 
B2B context, we really focus on doing this testing with the content that you're producing. Kev, talking about A-B testing, an example that really springs to mind is when we used to work at that agency that had a really large uh, flight aggregator as a client and we were on their account, we found out that just 0.1% of a um, difference in conversion rate, meaning the number of people who came to a page who went on to actually buy something, if that changed by 0.1%, that equated to millions of dollars in revenue for them either gained or lost, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, it's definitely pretty crazy. Uh, now, listeners, I know you're probably thinking, well, we don't have millions of uh, followers or people coming onto our website every day to actually have that sort of massive impact from uh, you know 0.1% conversion rate lift. But instead of trying to get half a sale more, actually, if you get one more sale in a B2B space, it actually has way more impact from a revenue point of view because... Generally, a B2B sale or relationship establishment uh, to lead to customer is worth so much more than one transaction. Like a flight sale might be a couple of hundred dollars, but a B2B relationship can be a couple of hundred dollars every month for the next five years. So really getting one more sale from a content test can have way more impact in the B2B space than a B2C space actually. It's kind of funny, Kev. It, it makes me think about how um, you and I read Atomic Habits. And I think one of the main messages there at the end of the day is every day wake up and try and be 1% better. And if you do that, then in 100 days, you're going to be far more than 100% better than you were at the beginning um, because it's a compound effect, right? You should be applying that same principle to your business. Definitely. It can be daunting to start that process aside from actually setting that up, which now there's actually a lot of free tools for. Just to give you a few examples of the things that you could start testing, you could start testing different topics, maybe formats of how you put out content. Maybe you were writing a lot of articles before. Try doing a video or try doing even just a different type of content layout with more sections or shorter piece of content versus long piece of content, as George said before. Looking at timing the release of your content with seasonality, what's trending at the moment, and shifting maybe some of the content that you had planned to a later time in the year where it's more relevant. I want to even take it one step further and say, guys, even if you don't have Google Analytics set up on your site, if you're active... Um, on social somewhere, if you're active on Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram or any of the platforms, they all have an analytics section for you to just dig in and you can go, okay, that post that I did on Monday, did it get more likes than my one on Tuesday? Okay, well, what was the difference? Was it the time of day? Um, it was the day of the week. Was it short? Was it long? Was I funny? Was I serious? And you just start to test and, and test and learn. Yeah, another actually really great place to look for ideas is your top competitors. If the top competitors in your space are doing well, then you can probably find clues about what that is in the content that they're putting out and thinking about, okay, which things are working well. Maybe I can take some of those and test and see if it works for me as well. Yeah, all with your own content tilt, of course, Kev, as we spoke about last week. Definitely. Don't, that is not an endorsement to copy other people's content. <laughs> That's right. That's right. People can copy what you do, but they can't copy who you are. So make sure you have a content tilt, everybody. Very important. Very important point. One last point, listeners, before we move on from A-B testing uh, your content and testing different types of content is it's important to also layer on a level of complexity to that process, thinking about how each audience group might respond differently to a piece of content. That's the same piece of content won't make everyone happy, 
but you can make two pieces of content for two different audiences. Yeah, I think um, an example that springs to mind for me, Kev, I think I've told you about them before, the um, packaging company that I work with. Um, they really built their mm. reputation as um, packaging for fresh goods, so like berries, strawberries, that kind of thing. I guess strawberries fits just under the berries um, category, yeah. doesn't it? I probably didn't need to go on with But anyway, they built their <laughs> reputation on um, packaging for fresh, um, fresh produce. And now they're starting another arm of the business, um, which is packaging for meat products. So the content that they're putting out there that's appealing to the fresh guys is completely different to the meat guys. So what they realized they needed to do is we needed to start making content specifically for people in the meat industry to reassure people that multi-steps had the facilities, the know-how to package meat safely and to show that they were an expert on that as well. So you have to really keep in mind your audience that you're creating content for and very rarely is it a, a um, one piece of content fits the the same audience you really have to look at okay which segment within my business is this piece of content tailored to and then write it to them i can imagine the guys looking for meat packaging probably wouldn't be too happy with packaging that has a lot of holes for berries to breathe through uh, probably <laughs> yeah. not very sanitary no as a um as a hygiene freak i mean i was really way ahead of covid i was washing my hands compulsively well before there was a pandemic but i in particular would not be happy if there were holes in my meat packaging a year before covid happened listeners george was buying uv light to clean his phone <laughs> before it was before it was popular to do so <laughs> before it was cool kevin not just popular cool and very cool <laughs> hygiene is cool now and i was cool before <laughs> Enough about A-B testing. I think, I think we've made our point that you need to agree on a metric. You need to test different pieces of content with your intended audience and you need to learn to measure and improve it. All right, George, this next one is really just an extension of the Dream 100 concept that you love so much is uh, mm. about maximizing affiliates. Why don't you take us through this one? Because I know you're dying to. Yeah, Kev, you love using the word affiliates, but I'm not sure that affiliates is going to like mean a whole lot to everyone who um, is listening. Sometimes I see the word affiliate and it just confuses me. I don't know if it's the F's and the L and they're all tall letters mm. or whatever it is. But the way I like to think about them instead is your affiliates are your partners or complementary businesses within your industry. Oh, that's a very good point, George. I think... I think you're right there that affiliate is really just a byproduct of the marketing lingo from a bygone era. And I think it definitely has bad connotations with it. Partners is definitely what we should be going for. You know what? Let me let me change the playbook right now just to change <laughs> that to partners straight away. I think that's a very good point. Maximize uh, There's something so dirty about that word affiliate. I don't know what it is. I think because... When I really first got into marketing, it was while I was at uni and I wasn't studying marketing, but I got super into SEO and I spent a lot of my time learning SEO to try and rank websites to be an Amazon affiliate and earn commission um, from selling products as an Amazon affiliate. And it was all just garbage products that I didn't care about and like they weren't good. So I, there's something that just feels very dirty and inauthentic about the word affiliate to me. And I much prefer to think about them as partners. 
No, I totally agree with you. I think even today, a, a lot of the, I guess, the spruikers out there in the space about get rich quick schemes, uh, you see ads on YouTube saying, you know, you don't have to do anything to make millions stuff today. <laughs> yeah. And it's generally an affiliate program. It's selling affiliate links and pushing products that you don't really have any connection to. And it, that's not what we're advocating here. It's really about maximizing those partners that we said to keep an eye out for when we were building out functions in your business. Now they actually become the best sources of revenue for you. Um, and you should actively look to fire the ones that don't fully align with your business. Um, and really that suck out resources from your time rather than add value to your business and focus on uh, growing the relationship with the good ones and really being a partner to them and getting more of them. Yeah, anyone in your dream 100 Again, listeners, Dream 100 is the top 100 influencers in your space online or offline in the case, I mean, in this case too. Anyone in your Dream 100 can be a partner. I would start by looking at, if you're an existing business, just start by looking at where you're getting referrals from currently. If they're complementary businesses in your space at the moment, then they're your partners. Yeah, and you should look to uh, treat them as if they were a true partner. Give them as much incentive as possible to keep working for your business because at some point you want them to do the business development for you so that you don't have to hunt for leads. They'll hunt for leads for you and they'll give it to you because they trust you to deliver on a product or service that they can guarantee the quality of, just like how you were looking for the same kind of partners when you were starting out. Yeah, I gave the example last week of um, I don't do websites, Waves, we don't do websites, but we do a lot of the prep work for websites. And um, then we have a partner, Digital Recipe, that we we send people to whenever they need a website. They do an awesome job. And then once that website's done, they send them back to me so they can continue on their marketing journey. You probably don't do every single thing in your industry. You're probably not like a, a sales force who is just a just an enormous beast who does absolutely everything yeah every business has their uh, resource limitations it can't all be sales it can't all be marketing and the, the easiest way to scale to to make the most of your resources is by utilizing the partners and these businesses that s surround your business and an awesome thing kev about really maximizing your partners and identifying the best ones is it really lightens the load on your own BD and having to do the BD yourself. So once you find your partners, yes, you should always be looking for new ones, but you really want to find the best ones and just look at how you can maximize that relationship. And it shouldn't be one way. It should be two ways, right? It should be a win-win situation for both of you if it's going to be really successful. Yeah, I think at a certain point as the business grows, people will have a tendency to, and marketing functions in particular, have a tendency to focus on more accounts, more signups, more referrers, um, more partners that we can use. But um, at some point, they seem to stop investing in, in the really good ones that are performing. It, it might actually be a lot more worthwhile to stop for a second and say, hey, I've got 100 referrers. Instead of going to 120 referrers, if I just cut down those 100 referrers to the top 10, 20, 30 and, and help them grow their business so that they in turn grow the number of leads coming through them, you're actually coming out ahead than if you've got another 20 um, new partners who aren't bringing you as many leads because they may not have that network that the existing partners already have. 
Yeah, and it's not just the warm, fuzzy feelings you get from helping another business grow that's awesome or helping the marketing manager on the other side do their job a little bit easier. Like, it's not just that. It's opportunities come when you build a relationship with another business that you just would never have even thought about or never dreamed about beforehand. So that personal connection, helping someone always leads to something great. I'm such a firm believer in that. It really just comes full circle a lot of the time. I think the next two parts that we talk about here actually quite closely relate to this concept of uh, maximizing your relationships and and probably looks at more the practical side of how you actually do that. Um, and the first one is CRMs. All right, Kev, CRMs, that's more marketing lingo. What is it? Customer relationship management. Yeah, customer relationship management systems uh, generally comes in the form of some sort of software that effectively just allows you to house all your interactions with customers and external stakeholders, whoever that might be, and have a record of any interactions that you've had with them in the past um, ready and at hand. So to name drop some platforms that you might have heard of, that includes Salesforce, HubSpot, Pipedrive, maybe ActiveCampaign. There's a, there's a whole suite of them out there. Kev, CRMs always cost a fair amount. And whenever we're working with a client in an earlier stage, when they're at the right stage, we encourage them to get a CRM. And it does always come at a bit of a cost. And I'd like to kind of get your thoughts as someone who is in-house at a B2B company of saying really like, what's the value in a, in a CRM as I guess someone who is a marketing manager in a B2B company? Yeah, definitely. I think Georgie hit the nail on the head there. As a small business, when you're first starting out, you probably have five contacts, 10 contacts that you're really talking to and building a relationship with. And you can pretty much manage that in a spreadsheet somewhere. Um, But it gets to the point where your business is like in the hundreds or thousands of people that you're interacting with, sometimes even on a daily basis. That Excel spreadsheet's going to be pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> and I think for most people, it's getting a bit too complicated to find and um, it becomes more of a hindrance than a help to a business yeah. of that size. And that's where CRM comes in. Uh, it's, it's just one of those key uh, components that a business of a certain size needs. Like us in-house at, at Medigy, like we, we draw so much important insights from our CRM, from our data points and warehouses about what's best for our business. Um, These platforms give you insights about what's the best sort of contacts um, that are coming through your business and maybe where they're hitting bottlenecks. Um, So it picks up that sort of thing quite quickly or allows you to analyze that quite quickly. And it gives you a very easy top-down view of where your business is at, where the bottlenecks are and where the opportunities are importantly. And it's just that centralized data source that makes it readily available to analyze all that great data and um, beyond that beyond just the 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 day-to-day data that comes to the website it gives you data about the stuff that happens offline like what Mm. happens when it moves to the sales team what's that relationship interaction like how long is the optimal length for having that sort of sales interaction before you really need to get a customer to commit and how long do you need to nurture them after that commitment to make sure they become a, a power user of your product or service. So it really helps you follow a the journey essentially of a potential customer as a lead all the way through to a paying customer and you can see yeah. every interaction along that way. Yeah, and in that way, it, it almost lifts the blindfold um, of that journey past um, 
password data that you might already have so that you're not just lost in this sea of data, but you're actually making sense of it all. Yeah, that blindfold for some reason made my head go towards 50 shades of gray, but that's not really lifting the <laughs> blindfold, is it? That's more putting the blindfold on. Yeah, George, uh, I don't think the listeners are too keen on <laughs> the weird thoughts that go through your head, but sure. Uh, lockdown stuff, Kev. Lockdown is tough. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Gee, that's, I think that's what they call in the radio business a handbrake moment where you just pull the handbrake and everything shudders to a halt. It's all right, George. Thankfully, I do the editing and posts, so I can just cut this out. <laughs> Thank you. Please, I don't want to be cancelled yet. We're just starting. <laughs> Kev, one thing that I really love about CRMs is they're fantastic for sales staff, but the good ones are so good for marketing too. As you said, it's really about blending that offline and that online interaction and being able to really segment or really divide up who the customers are in your CRM, who the different types of customers are. And so you can design your marketing material to hit them in a way that resonates with that particular customer. So with that packaging company we spoke about earlier, Kev, um, I'm sure you remember that. We just spoke about it. Um, (laughs) Within this company's CRM, they have people who are identified as either meat guys or fresh produce guys. And so we can send them very different content based on that division within the CRM. So that's what it's super handy for. And it really lets you automate certain parts of your marketing so you can scale your marketing to fit that audience. Uh, There's one more example I want to give, Kev. So we are a small business at Waves and we use Zero accounting software. I'm sure a lot of listeners have heard of that. It's a pretty good, pretty good accounting software, not too bad. Um, I would definitely be segmented within their database as a small business owner. So the kind of content that they send me is all stuff related to small businesses. It's all about, uh, you know, the kinds of things that I have to lodge um, as a small business, right? They're not sending me the same stuff that they might send a company with 50 to 150 employees because we fall under a different set of reporting requirements. Yeah, it doesn't sound very interesting at all, George. Uh, Got <laughs> a very interesting example, nonetheless. Um, yeah, this point about segmenting your audience and how CRM can really help that is is such um, a good call out for one of the key benefits of CRMs. When we talked earlier about um, building those customer personas and aligning your marketing activities and strategies to those customer personas, and then testing different audiences. Uh, and then testing different pieces of content with those different audiences. CRMs actually help you take that a step further along the way. Like at this point, you probably have a pretty good idea of who your personas are and the content that seems to work with them. And the CRM helps you confirm that and actually start to shift that if you need to go to a different audience or audience segment that you want to start reaching. Uh, CRM is a really good way to look at your current user base and think, okay, if I was in the accounting space before and now I want to reach lawyers for whatever reason, maybe there's some lawyers already in my CRM and I can see how they interacted with my product or service and what worked for them and what didn't and use that to build that new product, that new set of content for that audience. Really, when you get to that stage of expanding your audiences, CRM is, is almost a must because there's just so much data by that point. 
Yeah, fortunately, the CRMs, um, like at least they're priced to scale with your business. So as you actually are big enough and have enough paying clients to use more advanced features, like that's when they start to charge you more. But for quite a few of them, you can start for you know next to nothing or free, just as somewhere to store your contacts. All right, George, the next one is sales analysis. And oh, you love this, Kevin. This is your favorite. Well, you're the 80-20 about- yeah, guy. Yeah, well, we, we do start talking about the 80-20 rule and probably an easier way to, to to name that and get familiar with it rather than the, what is it, the Pareto The Pareto, no, Pareto, Pareto principle. That's it, Pareto principle. He was, I think he was an Italian, I want to say. I, I think know. so, maybe. But it's Something not. to do with peas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I remember. Yes, um, but yeah, the, it was yeah. too, yeah. But the concept doesn't change. Um, I think he, he might have applied um, this concept that 80% of your profits or the results are driven by 20% of the best profit drivers. Um, so in the case of peas that he was planting, it was like 20% of the plants were doing the heavy lifting. And he actually then applied that principle to economics and showed that 20% of the top performing companies and individuals in those companies produce 80% of the output of that economy um so that same concept applies to sales uh when you start looking at now that we have a crm in place and you know that you're looking to maximize your partners and your business start to look at your revenue and profits and where does the majority of that come from um so that you can maximize that um and make sure that you're using the least amount of effort to drive the most profit for your business so kev you're saying that we need to identify the 20% best profit drivers within my company. So out of the 100% pie of customers, I need to look at which 20% give me the best bang for my buck. Is that right? That's exactly right. It's about clearing the decks to to get more of those 20%ers instead of taking up all your time servicing the 80% that really don't drive that much profit for your business at all it's not just about profit though is it kev it's it's the one the clients that are no-brainers for you that make your life easy the ones that you don't have to spend ages on the phone with because they have complaints about something or they're not quite right just not quite the right fit for your business it's the ones that are no-brainers for your for your company exactly it's not about um you know when we talk about the principle traditionally is talking about profits but as you said there it's we actually don't see that as the best measure of applying this principle it's about thinking about the clients that you have and what's that 20 percent that you're servicing the best um, with your product because whatever it is that you're providing them it's a good fit for them but it's probably not a good fit for everyone else at some point you need to let that other 80 percent go and say hey look for someone else that's going to provide you a better product because they're going to be happier you're going to be happier and you're actually going to have a better and bigger impact um, because you're finding more of that 20% that you're already servicing well and you're finding more of them so that that becomes maybe 40% of your business, mm. 60% and so on. It's, it's something that's really easy to say, but it, it can be very hard to do. Mm. So I think, first of all, you probably need to get people to believe in the Pareto principle. It's, it is well-founded and well-proven, but you could probably look at a whole lot of aspects, even in your own personal life, and apply the Pareto principle to it. Um, I mean, just a quick example, I probably wear 20% of my wardrobe 80% of the time, mm. right? Is that the same with you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've actually started applying 
the 80 20 rule to my wardrobe so now i just have 20 percent <laughs> of my wardrobe left but <laughs> but uh it's definitely true it's definitely true yeah um like you probably listen to 20 percent of what i say <laughs> i listened to the dream 100 bit the first time. <laughs> <laughs> um i mean again like if you have a little share portfolio of yourself 80% of uh, the growth in your portfolio is probably from 20% of your investments, especially if you have Afterpay. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Afterpay would be a great one to have a little bit more of, but uh, it's definitely <laughs> doing the heavy lifting in a lot of portfolios I know. Yeah, anyway, just think about it yourself and think about how you can apply that principle to your life. Uh, do some more reading if you're not convinced by it. Um, believe in it and then look at how you can apply it to your own business. Yeah, and you don't have to apply it in one go. We're not telling you to go out tomorrow and fire 80% of your clients and, and hope <laughs> that the 20% will keep you in business. What we're saying is if you, if you start thinking about it um, in, that, in that way, applying that principle, you can start to shift your focus a little bit um, and it will help you figure out where you need to put your energy. Like maybe you have two competing clients coming in, but you can apply this principle and realize, hey, one of these is going to have much more potential for me to, to grow and I just don't have time to service both of them. So maybe I focus on the one that gives me better potential, better avenue to, to further my product and my business and, and start with just that. Maybe it's just a choice between two clients on any given day and see how that goes after a month. And if it works, maybe test it on a new one and then slowly but surely you'll start to shift into that 20%. That's really uh, a good fit for your business more and more. Yeah, it's a good good example. And I think it's just a, a sensational business lesson. And it really ties into what Seth Godin talks about, which is always serving your tribe, that group of people who are quite loyal to you and follow you and really like your, your product or your service. And if you focus on serving those people, you're going to be better at marketing to them. You're going to create a product that's better for them. If your sales team are aligned with that, they're going to be able to sell better to them. If your customer service team are just getting that 20% who get your product, their lives are going to be made easier. So the benefits really go across the whole business. All right, listeners, we'll link those um, couple of books that we mentioned just uh, that talk about the 80-20 principle if you want to do a bit more research and reading on that one. But there's plenty of resources out there for that rule. And it really all comes down to that very simple principle of looking at your top performers and focusing in on them. All right, Kev, this next part builds a little bit on... Well, it really does build on the A-B testing that we were talking about earlier. And now we're talking about how you can actually apply that to your emails. Mm -hmm. Emails, I think, for B2B businesses, it's just it just becomes over time your most important channel. It's, it's a free channel. It's one that gives you infinite amounts of feedback. And it's probably the easiest way to launch new products, services, and communicate with your audience. And that's why it makes it all the more important for you to get the most out of that channel. Yeah, you can apply really similar tests um, in this space as you can really anywhere. So again, changing the tone, uh, changing the length, uh, the formality. I mean, just anecdotally, I find that if you have a really kind of informal um, style of sending emails, the open rates, or I guess, yeah, the open rates and the click rates within them actually tend to be a lot higher. Um, if you make a typo while you're sending an email, I mean, it depends on your business, but you don't always have to fix that typo. 
because uh, that can actually help build some trust and you can look at data to, to help you see that you know maybe an email that has a higher click-through rate has grammatical errors in it yeah yeah it makes uh the the readers think okay someone human is writing this it's not just an email blast that everybody's getting right and it's written in a way that it speaks to that person who's opening it if i send you a text care if i make a typo do i go back and fix it no, you know I'd just ignore it anyways. Yeah, you'd ignore it. I think if you sent me a text, though, you probably would fix the typo. 100%. And maybe send yourself send yourself to the naughty corner for a while, reprimand yourself. I don't know. I don't know what happens in your house, Kevin. I haven't been there in some time. But I imagine there is a naughty corner. No naughty corner, George. Heavy corner is a naughty corner. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, George, the best way to approach this is not to overwhelm our listeners with any sort of way they have to go about optimizing their EDMs. It is really dependent on where your current email funnel is at. So we'll probably just rattle off a few examples of things that you can try and test and analyze and see if you can get a bit more performance out of. All right, Kev, give us the list. All right, well, you mentioned before frequency, um, but another good one um, that takes that typo thing a little bit further is the actual content. Um, maybe you need to be a bit more detailed. Maybe you need to be a bit more general in the in the content that you're putting out there. Maybe it's uh, shorter or longer in length in terms of actually putting the content of your articles in the email or taking it out and just having a link. If people are interested, they'll click through. Yeah, or you could try different streams or email flows or sequences is another word that you might use to describe that as in, you know, you send someone one email, then what's the next email that you follow that up with if they opened up your first one? And then what's the third one after that? The whole idea is you're educating and nurturing that potential customer to eventually be a, a paying customer. So playing around with the emails to push them towards that eventual goal of becoming a customer. Yeah, I think you gave me a really good example a few months back, George, where you talked about um, a business that had two different streams of emails. One was like a weekly blast about the latest updates about the service and what's happening with that business. But then another one is way more educational and people can enter into one stream or another and they can subscribe to one um, and just exit the other one that's not really applicable to them or they have different intentions when they come into these different emails. And it's very clearly indicated in the title and the layout of these different emails. Yep, it's different strokes for different folks. <laughs> All right, well, those are a few examples of how you can uh, improve your email funnel and uh, how to make the most out of each one of those interactions. Uh, there's a chance that what we've spoken about up until now might feel a little bit overwhelming, right? We, we've spoken about the reporting that you need to set up. We've spoken about uh, A-B testing your content. We've spoken about partners who you wanted to call affiliates, but I, I stopped you from doing that. We've spoken about <laughs> CRMs. And then we've looked at the 80-20 rule. It just, it, and then after that, we looked at EDMs. It just feels like quite a lot, right? And if we're saying to someone that you need to A-B test across each of these, I think we really need to kind of strip back what it is or what channels it is that we're looking at and just focus on the ones that, that kind of really matter, right? 100%. Not every business has the goal of becoming a, a giant business like HubSpot or Amazon where you need to be in every channel out there and you don't have the resources to be in every channel out there. At some point, you're going to have too many channels. You become too stretched 
And really your brand and reputation becomes diluted because you're not consistent with the message and the content that you're putting out there across all these different channels and it becomes very hard to manage. But the good news is you don't need everyone. Uh, you don't need to be the go-to guy for everyone in your space or even in, in a particular location for that industry. It's just enough, you just need enough to make your business function effectively where you need it to be, where you want it to be. And putting in the amount of work that you want to without the pressure of doing more if you don't want to. And I think really that same 80-20 rule applies here. It's uh, making sure that you're looking at the channels that are working, that are bringing in the 80% of the value with 20% of the effort and bringing in the best results from. And this naturally means you're going to start focusing on those 20% of the channels that are working best uh, at allowing you to be most helpful to your audience as we covered in stage two and and again zeroing in on those yeah the 80 20 rule is just uh so adaptable can be applied to everything and i just want to add and reiterate again kevin that it, it's not about what platform that you like being on it's about the platform that your prospective customers are so if you love being on facebook but they're all on linkedin then I'm sorry, but you have to be on LinkedIn because that's where they are. And it's far too hard to get into shift channels. This kind of rounds it out nicely um, as, we, as we start to recap what we talked about today. In stage four about being better, it's all about here's some ideas and ways that you can look to get maximum efficiency out of the things that you're doing in your business. But it's important to keep in mind that all that optimization, all that testing can get out of hand and you have to keep in mind the 80-20 rule in deciding what to do first, what to do next. You can only do one thing at a time, uh, despite your best efforts. It's the one thing that you should really take away from this Be Better chapter is the 80-20 rule. If you guys agree with that and understand it, then that's what being better is. Awesome. Well, that wraps up uh, this week in stage four, Be Better. Next week, we're going to look at some advanced tactics that are used by high performance in the B2B space from small businesses to big businesses and what's allowed those businesses to really start to grow and expand and mature when they zero in on that particular tactic. Oh, I'm looking forward to that one, Kev. I really love looking at what the big guys are doing and then figuring out how can we enable smaller, medium-sized guys to do the same thing without the big budget. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Yeah, very exciting one coming up. And we're both really excited to talk about it. All right, guys, as usual, you can find everything we talked about in the show notes uh, and we'll chat to you next week as well. Yeah, if you have any feedback for us at all, please reach out. Uh, hello at the b2bplaybook.com. You can hit me up also, george at waves.com.au. If you have any feedback for Kevin, Kevin, you are kevin at the b2bplaybook.com. Yes, my email is fine. We also have the B2B Playbook page up on LinkedIn where you can find links as well to our B2B Marketing Club, uh, which is just a LinkedIn group where we um, get a bit more into the nitty gritty. Yeah, it's a cool group. I have released some of the templates that Kevin and I have used across our businesses and created for our businesses. So the content scheduler that we referred to earlier, it's basically a, a cool tool that we built that helps us stay on top of, you know, where to post content, when, who's responsible for doing so. It's really Kevin's way of making sure that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, <laughs> he, Kevin never has an issue with compliance. But anyway, we've released that tool for you guys there. So if you jump in, join the club, um, you get access to that and a whole lot more. Kevin and I are also in there um, to answer questions. So come along, bring a smile, 
and ask some questions. We're here to help. Yeah, we definitely hope that will be the start of that community that we're talking about in our earlier episodes that we hope to build and hope to help B2B um, businesses along the way in that space. Yeah, B2B marketing can be lonely. We're bringing everyone together. That's right. Awesome. Thank you, guys, and looking forward to seeing you next week. Speak to you soon, guys. A quick note before you go, listeners. You can find more great content and get in touch with us at theb2bplaybook.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter while you're there. We'll be back the same day and same time with another episode next week. Thanks for tuning in to the B2B Playbook, the easier way to champion your business online.